Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I'm hosting, uh, for the second time, a fellow Italian, Dr. Maria Chiara Rioli. Maria, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roberto. Thank you for this invitation. Maria is currently a fellow at the Marie Curie Global uh, in Cafoscari and also in terms of Venice and Fordham uh, in New York. Maria, before getting uh, this position, she was the project manager uh, of the ERC-funded project Open Jerusalem. Uh, we talked about the Open Jerusalem in a number of episodes, particularly with uh, former director uh, Vincent Lemire. So you can find a lot of details about uh, the Open Jerusalem in that particular episode. And she's also currently the coordinator of the Scientific Advisory Board of Ithaca, which is another uh, Horizon 2020 European funded project, and we, we certainly talk about it, which is about refugees and sort of the uh, uh, collections of the material and the history uh, behind the refugees. But more importantly, in the context of Jerusalem Unplugged, Maria is the author of a very important uh, book, one of the best that I read during the pandemic, um, published in 2020 by Brill, A Liminal Church, Refugees, Conversions in the Latin Diocese of Jerusalem, 1946 to 1956. And we will obviously talk about the book and how the book came about, given the variety of interests and professional trajectories that Maria covered in her uh, life. But first of all, Maria, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? So thank you for these questions and thank you for yeah, your invitation. I'm so delighted to talk with you, Roberto, today. Um, yeah, my Jerusalem. Um, the first time that I visited Jerusalem was in 2009. Um, Jerusalem was a place, a city uh, where I lived. Uh, Jerusalem became a subject of study and it became also much more than that. We can say that it's uh, an ordinary, extraordinary city also for my personal life. As we start a conversation about the city, I, I just want to first talk about uh, one of the topics that is really connected to your professional life and, and I suspect also to your personal life. And it's the question of refugees. In the book, you obviously talk about the refugees in Palestine, uh, 1948 but also in, a, in different projects. Uh, Ithaca, that you are currently uh, sort of coordinating, but also in your previous uh, uh, works, if anyone wants to look at the CV, it's quite impressive. I can certainly see that you have been drawn 
to the question of refugees. And I was wondering if you can tell us something about your connection with the refugees and how you came about to work on refugees. Yeah, sure. So when I, um, yeah, when I moved to um, Jerusalem, actually, I didn't move to Jerusalem. Uh, my first stay uh, in Israel and Palestine was in Betzahur, so in the Palestinian territories. At that time, I was a freelance journalist, and I had just started my PhD, um, which was at the time actually quite diverse. It was about the apartheid regime in South Africa and the role of the Roman Catholic Church in the segregationism. So I arrived um, in Palestine with an Italian program of civil service for conscientious objectors. And they used to volunteer with the Alternative Information Center, uh, which at the time was um, a joint Palestinian-Israeli non-governmental organization. Historically, the, the AIC, the Alternative Information Center, it was one of the very first uh, uh, joint Palestinian-Israeli um, association movements, grassroots movement, um, well known for its political advocacy and grassroots activism uh, established in, in the early 1980s. Now it's the Alternative Information Palestine. And uh, for me, it was a completely new experience knowing, um, meeting Israeli activists from uh, Matspin or uh, um, Palestinian activists from the West Bank and Gaza. So, um, that was the context where also I discovered the, re the refugee issues. So actually I wasn't um, so much informed on Palestinian refugee and Palestinian refugee history itself. And living in Betsahura and uh, visiting and working with uh, um, refugees in Bethlehem, yeah, that was the very first um, experience of uh, knowledge and um, life with uh, Palestinian refugees. That's where also um, my book started in some way, its journey, its way. But yet you are not uh, making the jump from uh, your work on South Africa into Jerusalem. So I, I was just wondering how did you transition and when that happened and what motivated you to somehow abandon your first ideas and then start working on Jerusalem? Yeah, sure. So the daily reality of what I lived in uh, Betsahura and in, in the area, I, I was um, in charge of the Satellite Violence Report for the AIC. Actually, all these experiences um, impressed me profoundly. And I felt that the only way to try to give further uh, complex, complexity was history. So that's why um, before leaving uh, for um, Palestine and Israel, also, um, I knew that uh, just some weeks before um, some ads of the Palestinian churches uh, published the Kairos Palestine document, uh, which is an important uh, publication uh, denouncing uh, Israeli occupation and also uh, Christian Zionism. I mean, it's uh, one of the most important declarations um, by Christian leaders. And, I, and it was actually, it was issued um, in Bethlehem um, December 2009, and I arrived to Bethlehem. I translated the document in Italian. It was published in Italian in many different languages. You can find it online. And so finding the, the, actually the link, because the first Kairos document was released in South Africa against apartheid, and there was historically a strong link between um, anti-apartheid um, leaders and uh, Palestinian church leaders. This was actually, for me, the link and the way to uh, cross the boundary and to move also to the study of um, the Roman Catholic Church in Palestine, Israel, and actually also in Jordan, because as we will see, the borders of the, the, the Roman Catholic diocese are um, more uh, larger, are larger actually, rather than being limited only to one region. Before moving, and talking about the Catholic Church in Palestine, and particularly in Jerusalem, which obviously is the main bulk and is going to be the main bulk of our conversation. But I want to bring you back to also your previous uh, work as a project manager of the, um, as mentioned earlier, the ERC-funded uh, Open Jerusalem project. Now, the Open Jerusalem, as uh, we talked about uh, with uh, in Saint Lemire, is this project that brought together scholars from different parts of the world with the idea to map the archives 
about Jerusalem, in Jerusalem and around the world, obviously dealing with the city itself. It was a fascinating project, which also showed the fact that Jerusalem is not just a global city because of a different composition of its inhabitants, but it's global because essentially it's a city that extended its influence and reach obviously beyond the borders of the city itself and across a large number of countries. And I was wondering if you can tell us about a little bit more about uh, the archives about Jerusalem and uh, what did you find interesting about uh, digging into these archives? What, what is that you learned that you didn't know about the city of Jerusalem? Yes, so um, you were talking about Open Jerusalem. Open Jerusalem um, is part of a wider, actually, archival renewal, we can, can use this term, also in Jerusalem and about Jerusalem. Open Jerusalem um, wor worked from nine, 2014, but it still continue, and we will release uh, in the coming weeks um, new archival uh, catalogs, especially related to the Jerusalem, the Jordanian period. Um, so from 1948 to 1967, the minutes of the municipal um, council. So just to give you the sense that the work is still ongoing and it's continuing. The um, issue of archives and the possibility of, to access new archives and unpublished sources links uh, Open Jerusalem with other Palestinian and Israeli international experiences and enterprises. What actually we can find in Jerusalem archives, first of all, it's the possibility to connect the city. So to really to go beyond the vision of um, sectarian approaches to one community divided from the others. And uh, what you experience is the multilingualism and the extremely variety of actors that um, you can encounter through archival investigation. So um, generally uh, people, um, in some way also scholars, uh, approach archives as a, uh, inert uh, places of storage. Jerusalem, on the contrary, reveals all the richness of archives where you can really meet in some way uh, ordinary people, not ordinary people, and, and new ways and new possibilities of the history of the city that you didn't Im imagine before, actually. Um, so the, for in the case of Jerusalem, this is pretty important because if we think about Jerusalem nowadays, we don't have this image of variety or interconnection or uh, mixity. Um, on the contrary, history um, and archives revealed that uh, this is not a, a peaceful or a calm history or a, a soft history, not at all. It's a conflict. So, so archives are full of conflicts. For me, it was um, moving, and I mean, moving in <laughs> for as an historian. It was uh, really impressive what I when I um, found in the um, Italian archives uh, in the foreign foreign office of the Italian archives a document that I found in, in Italian, and there was also the translation in Amharic in the Ethiopian or in the Orthodox Ethiopian community archives in Jerusalem. So this kind of interaction among sources. Um, is what is, uh, is a sign also of the interaction of the daily life in a city. So this is um, one of the most uh, intriguing aspects of our work, actually. I remember when I was talking uh, with Vincent about uh, the question of the archives, one of the issues was about uh, the politicization uh, of the material that you can find in archives and you know one of the biggest issues that we saw in recent times in Jerusalem is the question of ownership of buildings and how as you mentioned just people uh ordinary people can actually get access to that historical material and then eventually use it to make or support their claims so I, I guess I was wondering if there's any danger uh, and, you know, when, when you deal with this such kind of material and how you as an historian using that material that you can find connecting the various dots of a complex and multi-layered city as Jerusalem. 
yeah, it's extremely um, problematic and documents some in, in some cases uh, very sensitive. Um, we know that in Jerusalem, claiming rights, uh, access, ownership uh, uh, can be uh, justified uh, through archives. So, and completely opposing uh, claims. So, um, being aware that uh, um, archives. Uh, themselves act as knowledge producers and not only as source containers so that archives were produced by institutions, uh, individuals that add their own uh, agenda um, is one of the main um, um, aspects of awareness that uh, the historian has to always uh, experiment and practice. And archives, of course, encounters uh, silences, expectations, dilemmas, uh, so it, ethically, it's, it's extremely sensitive, and it's uh, sensitive if we talk about uh, 1948, 1967, and also other period of um, Israeli-Palestinian history and more generally a contemporary history. Um, so the exercise of uh, a rigorous uh, methodology, uh, the use and the awareness of the consequences of mm, while well, well dealing with documents, and also uh, the reasons be behind uh, um, the willing by institutions to make their archives available is another aspect for, for historians to, to be aware, actually. Um, we know, for example, all the problems uh, behind the digitization made by the Israeli state archives. So also digital history in this sense is problematic. That's why, um, coming back to Open Jerusalem uh, project, we decided not to focus primarily on digitization, rather than on cataloging, because this way was another uh, way to give uh, historians, but also um, people simply interested in the history of the city, the keys to access, but not to substitute their work actually, and not to give simply the digitized document that in some way um, erases the, um, the history of the document and also um, depoliticizes the, um, the work of the historian. So um, re-giving uh, keys uh, to entrance, uh, of entrance to, to archives is another way to make people more aware of the political um, uses and abuses of history. This makes me think about also the very uh, title of the project, op open, in a sense that uh, when you look around the words, history as a discipline is uh, on the downfall. You know, many universities are merging history programs with other disciplines. And uh, uh, in, in some European countries, they even removed history from some uh, uh, final exams, particularly at the high school level. But when you look at Jerusalem, history is paramount. People have memory buildings at memory. History defines the city itself. Uh, and in a sense also defines the relationship between the various communities within the city. And so I, I was wondering, you know, this process of opening, is there a silver lining at the end? Do you think that opening may be helpful somehow, or this is just a, a sort of a, an academic exercise? And, you know, without being this one negative, obviously, but I, I was just wondering if, if there's a final goal for uh, the Open Jerusalem project and what this uh, would be. Yeah, opening, of course, is, um, is a word that can be interpreted in many um, different ways. Um, you were talking about um, the, the conception also of history and the um, uh, worldwide um, audience. Um, we can we can see what you what you were saying, but at the same time, uh, um, looking at the public interest uh, about history, we see the opposite actually. So there is a general um, need of history by non-expert audience. That's why you, I mean, channels on uh, um, historical topics uh, are largely developing uh, all around the world. Um, academic, non-academic actually, uh, blogging on historical topics also are developing. There is, in this really Palestinian case, you see all the interest uh, behind genealogy, which is, of course, also mm, 
driven by um, political or um, biographical needs um, and claims, but it's also, um, it witnessed this um, sense of the role of history in, um, in, in the global and in the current uh, uh, scenario for different societies. Um, so in this sense, opening a, a response to a question by a non-informed audience, and this um, recalls the importance for the historian to teach and to um, give access also to non-informed public uh, uh, the tools and the methodologies of the historical work and the use of sources and records. And at the same time, uh, opening, uh, um, it's, it's something more nuanced. It's, it's a way to, to say that the time for oblivion has passed. And also for in the Israeli-Palestinian history, this can be in some way true. And that the time of history has come and the, this is important if we talk, for example, about 1948 and 1967, or the first or the second intifada, uh, the time for oblivion has passed, so the time for history has to come. Archives are fascinating places, uh, connected with mystery and stories. They do preserve the history of uh, people, and uh, as such, they, they're very rich. I remember when I first visited the, uh, um, the Vatican archives and it was very much a period of a famous movie uh, with Tom Hanks, uh, The Da Vinci Code. And so I remember going around and saying, hey, I actually have been to the, uh, uh, the Vatican archives and they don't really look like, uh, you know, those uh, that are portrayed in the movie, but still very fascinating. I was wondering what, which actually have been the two most, uh, surprising or fascinating archives that you visited, one in Jerusalem and one outside Jerusalem? Yes, so um, in Jerusalem, um, maybe, oh yeah, one um, for me the most um, revealing archives is what we can say it's not an archive. So it, um, it recalls the liquid definition of archives that in some ways we were uh, retracing during our conversation, Roberto. So archives in the city are uh, everywhere. You can find archives in institutions, so where you expect to have archives. Um, although maybe um, institutions, some, in some cases, repeat that they don't have archives, which is a, a classic answer that historians receive. But you, you also see, um, you find archives on roofs, on basements of uh, buildings, so in really unexpected uh, places. Uh, for me, in August 2014, I was in Jerusalem. Uh, I was um, doing research for my PhD and I was uh, living on the roof of the um, Franciscan hostel. Uh, you have a breathtaking view on the holy city, on the old city, sorry. Um, You're in the San Savior compound. Um, on the roof, there is a room. Um, there were uh, books. Uh, stored, uh, um, just thrown away, actually. And um, I received the answer very prior that uh, th these books were to be destroyed. And uh, with my husband, we started to look at these documents. And actually, not me, but he found uh, an album of visiting cards uh, from the late Ottoman period, so late 19th century until early uh, 20th century, more than uh, 1,500 uh, visiting cards from all the inhabitants and tourists and people um, composing the variety of, uh, of Jerusalem. And this very, uh, these documents actually, uh, for me, were revealing of the, the richness of the archives, but also the interconnection, because were printed by the Franciscan uh, printing press, so by a Franciscan institution, uh, so a Christian one, but you could find uh, the flyers of the Ramadan prayers, uh, documents in Hebrew, uh, documents in uh, Armenian, so uh, all the mm, different uh, languages of the city, uh, invitation for marriages, but also for Mardinsva, so all these different uh, aspects of life. There were the cards of mm, the members of the municipal council, but there were also cards of midwives and um, dragomans and middlemen. And um, so women, men, uh, young people, uh, 
pilgrims, um, all the voices that these documents um, echoed, and also the reception among scholars, so the exchange that I had with scholars after this, um, let's say, uh, discovery were, were to me uh, very inspiring. And uh, I wasn't uh, aware of the richness of this document, and this is another point for me. Uh, historians really need to collaborate with other historians, but also to other um, to people with other expertise, um, because it was uh, through uh, another view uh, of my husband in this case, but also to I mean to reflect in other eyes uh, the richness of the document that you that you feel the importance of what you're reading in a much more complex way, and uh, a broad. Um, uh, outside Jerusalem, yeah, you were mentioning the Vatican archives. Of course, uh, visiting for the first time the Vatican archives, you get the sense that you were um, explaining so this sense of mystery, um, intrigue. But um, and in my case, uh, this was in some way also true because I was um, when actually when the Pius XII archives opened. And I, maybe we can talk later about that. But um, on the contrary, the documents on the pontifical mission for Palestine, so we can we come back to the Palestinian refugees, uh, the documents of the Palestinian mission for Palestine devoted to the assistance of um, Palestinian refugees um, since 1949, uh, gathered at the archives um, of the Congregation for the Oriental Churches in Rome, Yes, these archives, the, the letters from refugees, um, requests, claims, petitions, and their interconnection between, the, um, between these documents and other documents that they found in New York or um, in London or in Paris um, or in Bethlehem. Yeah, this um, circulation of documents um, is something for... Uh, also for um, the awareness of the life entering in documents, how life matters, how history matters. You made me think about, uh, you know, business cards are generally speaking considered some sort of rubbish. And, and I can see why the, the Franciscans were kind of like throwing them away after such a long time. But on the other hand, they actually give us a sense of, uh, you know, real life, as you were just saying, like, uh, you know, who are these people, the names, the addresses, where they lived, the businesses were conducted, and, and also a sense of a, the, the relationship between these people and the connections that were uh, taking place. So, again, sometimes there is a fine line between what someone may consider like uh, garbage and, you know, an historian, we may consider actually a very important document because it tells us about uh, not just a story, but, you know, a larger history. And again, talking about the importance of, of archives, I was just thinking about uh, a book, before we're going to talk about your book, that was recently published by Eliezer Tauber um, about the, what he calls uh, the myth of the Yassin. And the book is called The Massacre That Never Was. And again, and you can see how, you know, the, the selective use of uh, archival material certainly, you know, creates a lot of problems. And why these books may be for scholars, the reality is that, particularly in the Palestinian-Israeli context and in the context of Jerusalem, they do have an impact on the larger life because they become political and they, you know, support uh, or do not support, uh, you know, claims of one group or the other. So, uh, again, the, the relevance of talking about archives, it, it's not just an academic, um, you know, sort of a idea or an, an academic privilege, but actually archives do matter in daily life of uh, people. And this brings me to your book, your book, which was published in 2020. Uh, and as I said earlier, and I don't have any problem repeating that, one of the best books I read during the pandemic when I had a little bit more time to sit down and read books. And the book is A Liminal Church. Uh, a Liminal Church refers to the uh, Latin church or the Catholic church. And so I was wondering if you can, first of all, give us a sense of the Catholic community in Jerusalem and in Palestine at large, and what is the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem, which many may have heard of, and those who visit Jerusalem may even see, even though it's in a little bit, it's in a corner, and so not necessarily tourists go by 
the church itself, but it's a certainly a very important institution in the city. Yes, sure. So um, the, the Roman Catholic uh, um, Church has different forms of uh, presence in the in the city and also in uh, Palestine, Israel, historically. Um, the Latin Patriarchate, um, it's, let's say that it's the Diocese of Jerusalem, and that's why I chose also this uh, specific word for, uh, for the title, it's the Patriarchal Diocese. It means that it's a territory administered by a bishop. Uh, in this case, the bishop is the Patriarch because of the particular importance of uh, Palestine. The other um, most relevant institution of Roman Catholic Church in the city, it's the Franciscan custody of the Holy Land. Um, physically, for um, people visiting Jerusalem, you can find the uh, seats of both these institutions in the so-called Christian neighborhood, uh, close to um, the Jaffa Gate. And the, the Latin Patriarchate, uh, uh, after all the history um, during uh, Crusades and uh, uh, medieval time, uh, it was um, re-established re uh, in uh, 1847 uh, during the re renewal of interest uh, to Jerusalem and Palestine, uh, and the, let's call it the Christian East by um, Christian churches, but also we know by European powers and the establishment of uh, the consulates and the re-emergence of Jerusalem in the uh, international scenario. Um, nowadays, uh, um, the Latin Patriarchate uh, is known for its schools, hospitals, um, and different kind of um, welfare association and uh, realities. And uh, uh, it's also uh, linked to the um, Christian and Catholic uh, congregations uh, living in the in the region that are themselves working in the um, welfare association or assistance associations or and the realities. Historically, um, the patriarchs are usually Italian, um, but there are there, there were also uh, Arab patriarchs, uh, Palestinian and Jordanian. Um, it's um, complex history because it's not only um, composed by Arab faithful, but also for European or Western clergy, and also the um, small community, um, which is nowadays the uh, Hebrew-speaking vicariates uh, within the Latin Patriarchate. A small community, in it's not so correct, but um, uh, maybe we can talk a bit more about that later while explaining also the history. Um, during uh, after 1948 of this uh, community. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We will certainly engage with a question of a St. James Vicariate, uh, you know, this very interesting group that emerged uh, in the past few decades. But I, I want to go back to the Latin Patriarchate. So obviously when we think about the Catholic Church, people tend to think about this uh, worldwide institution, uh, which is often considered very powerful, and if not powerful, certainly very influential. Uh, the reality in Palestine is that obviously the numbers are very small, but yet, you know, the Latin patriarchy is very, uh, is very prominent, and uh, the patriarchs uh, throughout the, its reestablishment in 1847 always had some sort of a, you know, visible presence in Jerusalem. Now, your book focuses for the most part in the period between 1946 and 1956. So I really must ask here, what was the role of the Catholic Church during the war of 1948, which ended with the uh, declaration of a uh, state of Israel and also with the Palestinian Nakba? And uh, how did the church navigate this very complex uh, period of time? Yes. So. Um... In my book, I try to follow actually the traces of different uh, communities within uh, the Roman Catholic Church, actually trying to um, go beyond the sectarian approach that I mentioned before um, talking with you, Roberto, uh, because um, it's, um, it's evident that every, uh, com every community is made by people, so people interact among each other. And historically, especially in the late, in, uh, in the late Ottoman period, uh, if we see, for example, the documents related to um, Christian congregations, um, the list of uh, populace attending Christian schools, we discovered that there were Muslims, um, Jewish uh, students, and so all the uh, interaction and non-Catholic uh, students so among, from other Christian denominations. So um, what was um, normal was that Christian institutions were not um, linked only to um, Christian, I mean, people uh, self-declaring -de Christians or baptized. Um, and this is another element for, of interest to focus on the specific uh, archives, because they, uh, rather than being confessionalized, you discover all the rich, richness of um, relations uh, among communities, uh, institutions, and people, and families, and um, cities, I mean. Um, villages. Um, so during 1948, um, in um, in my book, so the, the link, the, the point of view of these communities through convents, uh, schools, or small communities, um, or other forms of uh, points of observation, were to uh, analyze how the events were lived. So also um, lived, perceived. Um, analyzed, um, re-narrated um, to other people later during the same times so through the correspondence, for example, with the um, other religious community in uh, Europe. Um, so this is another way to, um, to, to, to reconstruct the social history of 1948 that still is uh, uh, a problem uh, not only uh, an historical problem, as you were mentioning before, also a political problem, uh, because this, game, this lack of social history um, opens the path also to abuses of interpretation or misinterpretations or ideological uh, interpretations that are not historically uh, grounded and uh, um, based on uh, source evidences. So uh, during this period, uh, the, the church lives uh, 
all the uh, changes and um, and the battles and the uh, and the transformations um, coming from the war for Palestine. Um, we know that the war for Palestine is not only a military experience; it's also uh, a humanitarian change, a political, social, actually huge transformation for uh, different societies. And uh, uh, in this sense, uh, looking through um, the, the Roman Catholic archives, uh, but to, to all the interconnection of these documents, we see this transformation. You were quoting uh, the scene, for example, in the documents, in the, in the chronicles, in the convents, um, you, you see the reference of refugees coming from the Yassin in, in, in the very days uh, of, of the events coming. So uh, you, see, you, you find names of people um, moving from one convent to another, um, moving from uh, um, different parts of the old city of Jerusalem. You see the efforts of the um, Christian institutions to um, claim for the truce in 1948. Uh, you actually you can uh, find all the events on the on a daily basis, and that's what I try to do really to in, in a part of the book. It's almost a daily narrative uh, of the 1948, actually 19, 1947, 1949 events through these unexplored sources. But it's um, you find in other chronicles from. Uh, uh, from Acre, from from Akko, and and also um, the Jordanian side, uh, how, for example, the communities uh, in in Jordan were reshaped by the arrival of the refugees, and the humanitarian effort also there, as well as the interconnection between uh, at the and its foundation uh, between uh, humanitarian. Uh, agencies by uh, driven by the Catholic Church and Urwa, for example. So um, you really see the changes on the ground through this kind of ar archives. Rather than being uh, sectarian, they are actually a um, powerful um, tool to retrace uh, many different uh, um, sectors of the societies uh, involved in the, in the conflict. I was wondering, let's say more specifically about uh, the, the church, particularly in Jerusalem, how they dealt with the influx of refugees and also how they negotiated with, uh, you know, the creation of the state of Israel and on the Palestinian refugee problem later. And again, you, are, you have a church here that uh, found, basically found itself in the middle where most of the uh, followers of a Catholic uh, and, and Latin uh, church in, in Palestine, Jerusalem, obviously Palestinian descent, but also the leadership is mostly European. And so they also had, you know, sort of the heritage of what just happened, uh, you know, a few years earlier during World War II, and that including also the Holocaust. So I, I was just wondering how did the, the, the local church in Jerusalem and not necessarily the Latin Patriarchate, but also the parishes of, of the Patriarchate, kind of the dealt with all of these uh, rapid and dramatic changes yes so there um, there were parishes um forced to close there were um buildings that previously had hosted pilgrims for example the casanova which are traditionally uh the buildings from the franciscan custody um were uh, aimed at uh, um hosting pilgrims uh, still yeah nowadays were transformed into uh, foyer, into buildings for um, housing refugees. And it's interesting also in this sense to really go to, um, uh, for example, um, the list of the names of the refugees housed in these kind of buildings, because you find the names of the families, you find the neighborhoods of provenance from the different neighborhoods of Jerusalem. You also find the uh, uh, the rooms actually where they moved from uh, one room to another, for example, because some members of the family arrived later. Um, and the, the reaction and after 1948 also um, the conflict between refugees and, uh, uh, and the friars, uh, because in, at some point uh, the friars wanted to um, reopen uh, the Casanova as hosting, uh, um, for, yeah, to host pilgrims. But refugees were still there. 
So um, there were efforts of yeah, avoid a conflictual end, but um, still uh, conflicts are part of uh, uh, also humanitarian uh, efforts. So it, this is um, evident in every in every kind of initi humanitarian initiative, and you, you find it also in this kind of uh, historical experience. So um, there were canteens open to uh, give the bread, for example. Uh, and this, this is true in Jerusalem, but for example, it's true also in Nazareth. Uh, you have powerful um, photographs of um, people uh, asking for bread in Nazareth. This um, kind of, I mean, view on the city um, changes uh, also um, the narrative, the general narrative, because it gives uh, much more uh, specific, but at the same time, uh, the possibility to link uh, this kind of um, humanitarian uh, emergency to other cases. Because what what's it's interesting also, it's 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 not unique, uh, of course. Um, so it can be compared to the other experience of, for example, of hosting uh, refugees in the city. Armenian refugees coming after uh, the genocide, and also uh, after 1948, 1967, or other moments of, of Jerusalem history. So it's important to, to, to the observation, um, the uniqueness of 1948, and at the same time, the element, the historical uh, um, um, trends and um, recurrences um, related to, uh, is, to, to refugee um, history in, in the city and beyond. One of the most uh, intriguing, but I think one of the uh, sort of the best part of, uh, of this work, and this, you know, some sort of a message to the listeners, uh, check out this book, because often the, the, the question of the Palestinian refugees is seen through a certain set of sources that we all know and are aware of, what Maria Chiara did was to look into a new set of sources, uh, you know, Catholic material coming from churches and give us a sense of, uh, you know, the events, how they were unfolding, but more importantly, providing us with uh, even more and better information, particularly about the refugees themselves as individuals, uh, something that, you know, churches do often uh, as part of a job is really to record. Uh, you know, not just uh, deaths, birth certificates, but in fact, many churches do have books where they chronicle uh, events. Sometimes this is like, uh, you know, can go from a very boring day where nothing really happened, but also it can include very important details. And I think this is one of the sort of the most important contribution of Maria Chiara's work uh, in, in relation to the, to the literally emerging Palestinian refugee question uh, when we look at 1948 through uh, the the small but very relevant Catholic lenses. I want to ask you something about uh, uh, the church in Jerusalem during the Jordanian period, because this is a fascinating era when the city was divided between 1948 and 1967, and very little has been written. Uh, Kimberly Katz, among one of them, but not many others have engaged with uh, the Jordanian side of the city, and you know, particularly. The, and so I was wondering what happened to the. Uh, to the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem during the, this period of time, and how was the life also for Catholics and Latins in um, in the city in this period? Yes, yeah, so the, the the Patriarchate was divided, obviously, um, and it's uh, interesting to see, for example, the the Patriarch moving from both sides uh, of the city and of its diocese, and the difference between. Uh, the differences between uh, this uh, side, say, um, and also the new interaction with the, the new actors emerging from uh, 1948. Um, for example, there are documents related to um, relations between uh, the Latin Patriarchate and the, um, the Jordanian period uh, Jerusalem municipality, uh, which is something almost unknown. Uh, it's linked to again to, to the refugees because there were requests uh, from the municipality to the Latin Patriarchate to uh, provide assistance aid and funds to um, some actions pursued by the Jerusalem municipality. Uh, so these kind of interactions are still um, quite unexplored, and it's important to 
to, to, to give light to that, to, to, to know more about this period. Uh, because um, we could say that uh, um, this is a period interpreted under the light of 1967 um, in some ways. Still, it's, um, it's approached in some way in this way. But um, this is not the case because you, you find in, uh, um, in this period uh, also many initiatives from, from the ground actually emerging. Uh, of movements, associations, you, you have the, the petitions from refugees, uh, the emergence of the, um, uh, the awareness of uh, the condition on the subject uh, uh, of the refugees themselves, but also of other uh, institutions. Um, you have all the, the you have the, the emergence of, of a new, also in some way, political liturgy, um, after the, the, the establishment of the state of Israel. And you have the relation, of course, uh, between the new state and the Latin Patriarchate, uh, which are related also to the re-establishment of parishes, to compensation and reparations, um, to all the, some of the most sensitive um, topics still, uh, I mean, nowadays, um, you, you can find, uh, um, the depopulated villages uh, claiming to um, coming back and asking for the help of the patriarchate and all the diplomatic issues anxious uh, developing this sense. The interactions between uh, the Latin Patriarchate in Jerusalem, uh, the, the Vatican in Rome and, uh, um, and the, the Israeli government or um, the issue of the sense of belonging or not belonging uh, especially not belonging by uh, Palestinians to, um, to, to Jordan and all the conflicts between the Palestinian faithful and Jordanian faithful. So um, it's a very dynamic period uh, that cannot be interpreted only uh, considering what happened after um, and not only under the light uh, um, of the shadow years, and I quote in this sense, the uh, shadow Dumani words. So, of course, 1948 and 1967 are shadow years, and they reflect these uh, shadows also to um, the, the periods before and after. But at the same time, there are there is this what was called the age of possibility that is normally applied to the late Ottoman and in some way also the mandate period. Still, there were um, the potential history of the Jordanian um, period. I know that other scholars are working on that uh, with the Jerusalem Quarterly. Uh, a special issue will be also devoted to this period of time. Hanin Nam is working uh, on, this, um, on these topics. Uh, so there is an increasing interest in that. Um, it, it has still to change the uh, most well-known um, image and photograph of um, of this period, which is still dominated by other aspects. I'm not saying, of, of course, that this, this was a positive or <laughs> pleasant period of time, and not at all. It was very conflictual and traumatic and uh, tragic. And not bad, but, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's important for historians to dig in that. As we're reaching the end of the interview, I want to bring you to uh, somewhere else, somewhere else in Jerusalem. A long time ago, when I was at the very beginning of my own work, uh, on my PhD and my research uh, on Jerusalem, I remember I was walking uh, alongside Jaffa Gate, uh, uh, Jaffa Road, with a purpose to find what was the Italian consulate during the late Ottoman period. And so I had an old map, and uh, I eventually found it. It turned out to be a, right now it's a, uh, convent or it's a, it's a house where some nuns live. But more importantly, I also found out, as they allowed me to visit briefly, that it was the seat of uh, an occasional church back then, but I, I think right now it's, uh, it, it's definitely hosting, um, you know, masses on a regular basis, of the Hebrew-speaking Catholics. When I was uh, told about the existence of the group, I must say that I was surprised to say the least. I, I never expected to find uh, Catholics who would use Hebrew uh, in Jerusalem. And I, and I found myself 
asking questions. Who are these people? Why are they using Hebrew? And in time, I get to know some of them. Uh, one was also a guest here uh, on the show, David Neuhaus. But I want to hear from you a little bit more about the history of what is known as the Association of St. James, which is the Hebrew-speaking Catholic community in Jerusalem at large in Israel. A group that I would say for obvious reason does not necessarily publicize very much uh, its activities. Yes, so in um, 2011, um, I was, uh, yeah, it was during my PhD and I was um, in Jerusalem uh, working in the um, French Research Center and exactly through um, Father David that you mentioned, um, I could meet uh, uh, Johanna Nilichai um, that, that uh, who is one of the founders of the community. And um, uh, for me, this uh, meeting was extremely important. It completely changed also my, um, actually my work after that, that moment, because he, he opened the archives, uh, which is again, the multiplicity and the, the variety of archives in this case were, um, a part of his uh, room, so he didn't live in a convent or a monastery or another religious building. He lived in an ordinary flat apartment in uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, in this flat he, he had also some many documents that he collected in, uh, uh, during all his life. Um, and so Johanna um, Nelichai, that was. Uh, his, his name is uh, Jean Leroy. Um, he was found, one of the founders of the St. James community in the early 1950s, as I tried to uh, retrace in uh, one chapter of my book. And uh, um, that, at that time, the name was the um, St. James Association, Le Vrai Saint Jacques. And it was composed by different uh, uh, people, um, many coming from uh, Europe. Uh, some of them with uh, Jewish origins uh, or uh, converts from Judaism to Christianity, especially to Catholicism, that um, went to Israel after the Second World War, after the Holocaust, uh, and started to, to meet uh, and to establish um, a church, a community, let's say a community, extremely, link, extremely linked to uh, Judaism. So they promoted a new vision of a relationship between uh, um, Christianity and especially Catholicism and Judaism. They opened uh, the foyer, so some apartments in, uh, in Israel were to um, meet up and to um, share prayers, but also um, the reading of the Bible, but also cultural events, and, and we will see also political interpretations in some way. Um, some of them became uh, intellectuals in Israel, uh, also um, authors and uh, professors at the Hebrew University uh, of Jerusalem. Some of them contributed to the Second Vatican Council and to the very troubled uh, genesis of the Nostra Etate document. Uh, they established, the, they tried to establish a Catholic kibbutz, they translated the liturgy into Hebrew, uh, and some of them were involved also in the Israeli-Palestinian um, pacifist movement. Um, Bruno Sar was one of the founders, was the founder actually of the Neve Shalom village in Israel, gathering uh, uh, Isra Jewish Israelis and uh, um, Arabs in the, in the, in the state. And also, it's, uh, it's a very interesting history because um, some of them elaborated a, a form of Catholic Zionism, so it's a very problematic history, uh, which was opposed by another part of the community. Uh, and this uh, um, reflected all the complexity um, of these kinds of identities and all the complexity of the effects of uh, history um, to uh, religious communities. So um, some other members rejected uh, these interpretations, especially after the second uh, the outbreak and after the second intifada. And nowadays the community is, uh, is different. Um, Father David made a huge work uh, in this sense, and uh, um, it's an, uh, it's a tiny but very important community within the church because it testifies all the yeah the multiplicity of 
belonging to church. It gives a sense of the inner uh, diversity uh, of the church, and especially in a context um, like Jerusalem. Um, in my book, I focus on the very first phase uh, of this history. Um, so the, basically the 1950s, I wrote some uh, papers and the articles in other journals on the following phases. And I'm currently writing a, a monograph um, covering the 1940s to nowadays um, history of this community. And it's interesting because, um, again, it's not a, a Jerusalem um, limited community. Um, I found correspondence and documents on the other side of the ocean. So um, in New York, in New Jersey, there are documents sent from the members um, to the American Jewish Committee, to Christian leaders um, involved in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, relations and uh, dialogue. So um, it's a tiny but uh, well-connected community. It was a tiny but well-connected community. And for an historian, it's uh, extremely yeah, interesting to, uh, to retrace all these links and, um, and relations. Well, I recently went to a number of uh, mass celebrations uh, out of curiosity, particularly in Jerusalem. What I noticed was that there's a growing presence of uh, economic migrants that do work mostly for Israeli families around Jerusalem. Uh, many coming from India or the Philippines. And the interesting thing is that if they cannot go uh, you know, to mass uh, in an English-speaking you know, celebration, they certainly use Hebrew, which now has become some sort of a lingua franca. And so I, I found it like you know, puzzling to see that how Hebrew now is becoming this language for migrants and they basically start attending in large numbers, you know, th this community in Jerusalem. And so I, I found it like, a, again, interesting, puzzling, and uh, something that I guess we have to reckon with. I mean, there is this new, uh, small but relevant community that is emerging in, in the city, and not just in the city. Obviously, there are uh, parishes uh, throughout uh, uh, Palestine and Israel. Yes, definitely. Um, Vaculating faith in different, in, I, uh, through Hebrew, it's a scene from an historical perspective. It's really puzzling, as you were saying, because um, in my current researches, I found that, uh, the first catechism uh, in Hebrew, which was printed in 1945 um, by the Franciscan printing press, again, so the Franciscans, uh, approved by the Latin Patriarchate, uh, um, sent to Rome, so 1945, let's think about this date, um, catechism in Hebrew for uh, converts. Um, and now it's completely different, of course, the situation. So um, we are in a totally different scenario and uh, Hebrew uh, becomes um, a way to connect uh, people with very different background. Um, linked, I mean, the, the, uh, the experience of migration that you were um, that you were uh, describing uh, uh, affects the, the, the sense of belonging to the church and the, the Hebrew uh, passes through these uh, elements. So uh, it's unexpected, but it's uh, again the daily life that teaches us because um, when children go to school and uh, are taught in Hebrew, and um, their experience of life is in Hebrew, and the church has to um, refocus on different tools, on different uh, um, forms of catechism, for example, and David Noyaus made a brilliant work in that, uh, not with a, a apologetic, uh, uh, intense, uh, um, yeah, different, uh, uh, different reasons. Uh, languages are, as archives, languages are really are powerful in the history of Christian communities, and still they they dominate some way, and they and they are keys of entrance, also to understand um, teaching, the praying, prayer, the preaching activities, the church. This was Maria Chiara Rioli, currently a Marie Curie Fellow of 
at Cafosco in Venice, Italy, and Fordham, New York, and author of the uh, book published by Braille in 2020, A Liminal Church, Refugees, Conversions, and the Latin Diocese of Jerusalem, 1946 to 1956. Maria Chiara, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you to all those um, listening to this conversation. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.